Hello, dear listeners, and welcome to Rethink, a podcast where we revisit past articles from the University of Malta's Think magazine. Looking at the pioneering work we have featured in the past, we catch up with the researchers to see how far they have come since they appeared in the magazine. My name is Chris, and as always, I'm joined by my co-host, Diver. Hello, and today our guest in the studio is Mark Anthony Azzopardi, who is developing a very exciting technology to launch tiny devices about five by five by five centimeters into space. Yes, thank you, Deva. Um, as I said, Mark Azzopardi. I'm, I'm actually not the only person developing this. There's a whole team uh, around me, uh, including uh, university colleagues in my department and a lot of students. And yes, we've been working on this uh, interesting and exciting field for, for a number of years now and hopefully for many years to come. What would you name as uh, the greatest uh, achievement so far? So there are many little achievements and, and uh, driving towards the main achievement. So the basic achievement is the reduction of costs uh, to access space. That is, I would say, the goal rather than the achievement. So uh, that's the target. But in going to that, uh, in achieving the state, first we must develop a whole uh, range of technologies in order to be able to miniaturize a number of systems that you would need for the typical mission. For example, whether it's uh, solar power, whether it is, uh, in some cases, you need propulsion, in other cases you need uh, attitude control or control the orientation of the satellite in space, and um, and all the various subsystems, including communications and other bits and pieces, which become quite challenging when reduced to this very small scale. And besides all of this, we still need to achieve a certain degree of reliability, um, because uh, obviously none of this is serviceable in space, so you launch, <laughs> and that had better work. So a lot of the uh, the work that we go through is in, in reality it's about reliability engineering. So with these micro satellites how many kind of functions because the aim is for them to be modular so you could kind of buy a kit and put one two three sensors on. How many sort of jobs could you get on one of these kind of micro satellites so if you've got like your propulsion system your altitude kind of monitoring and something to monitor I don't know space dust. Not, a, not an astrophysicist, obviously. <laughs> but how many of these sort of jobs could one of these satellites do, or do you need lots in tandem? Yes, um, in fact, that's one of the recent developments in the, in, in the, in the mindset of the community. Um, rather than having large satellites performing a complex uh, and uh, a whole barrage, a whole, a whole array of functions in one satellite, and obviously that would mean it would be a large and expensive satellite to launch, the idea now is to uh, move towards uh, cheaper, faster and, um, and, and quicker um, launches of satellites which are far smaller and can perform tasks uh, which are much more focused. So rather than having one large satellite, you divide the tasks between a number of satellites and each of them would be then substantially cheaper and easier to launch. So. In our particular satellites, at the extreme end of the scale, in fact, they're called Pico satellites at the scale, because micro-satellites are practically the size of a table. Oh, so smaller even than that. <laughs> yes, they're called Pico satellites. There's a whole uh, nomenclature around it. They basically um, incorporate limited number of functions. So besides attitude control and power generation and communications and all the things you would necessarily have in a satellite to be able to conduct the mission, we typically have a couple of slots for payload, which is basically the device which performs the scientific mission or whatever the mission is. 
and uh, typically it's very targeted. If you want another uh, function, you launch another satellite. You're sending up a lot of tiny little things into orbit, all sharing certain orbits. Is I don't know if one crashes into another one. Is that contributing to like there's a lot of space junk up there and yes. kind of like yeah <laughs> making it. I don't know, isn't it might be better to have one big one doing lots of jobs, but it's not going to crash into like it's 50 whole, little ones. It's a whole big debate, in fact. We are of the view that this approach will actually improve the situation rather than um, worsen it. If you launch much smaller satellites, you can afford to launch them at a much lower orbit uh, and a much shorter lived orbit. And therefore, besides the fact that you're launching less material in terms of kilos into, mm -hmm. into space, you're also launching it into this lower orbit for shorter missions. Now, if it's a very expensive satellite coupled with a very short mission, it starts becoming a problem because it's not really cost effective. But if you're launching small satellites more frequently and it doesn't really cost that much to replicate and to create copies of the satellite and launch them into orbit, then you can afford to look at the satellite as a kind of disposable artifact that uh, will perform its little mission and then it just the orbits burns up and leaves no trace. Mm -hmm. so, so that's the idea. And you mentioned there's a community working around these uh, cube satellites. Can you elaborate what kind of community it is? To what extent you share your findings or to what extent there is competition? I'm sure there is. Yes, there is an international community. There is also a local community. In the, in the local domain, so there are academics working in the different uh, aspects with the different disciplines that you would need to combine to create such an interdisciplinary uh, device. And uh, we basically use this as a, as a means to, to train students. And of course the students themselves. So it's, it's a, there's a research group built, which we have set up around this, divided into uh, smaller sub-research groups, each focusing on the different aspects and each of which has its own students, its own research students and postgraduate students now. The team is maturing. At the same time, the same is happening overseas. It is pocket cubes, so these little, very little satellites are a fairly recent development. So they didn't exist around 10 years ago, basically. It's just about 10 years since they were conceived. Only four have been launched so far and they were mostly amateur uh, satellites. Now we want to do more than just uh, amateur stuff. We want to basically use them for uh, practical and, and, and useful uh, missions. So there is a community, there, is a, there are universities, uh, most notably the University of Delft, for example, and then there is uh, Stuttgart, and, and uh, there, are, there are others, all working in this area, and we meet regularly. There's a workshop which is held every so often, and we share our results and our developments. Well. <laughs> moving. The article about pocket cubes appeared in the March 2017 issue of Think, uh, issue number 18. Let's hear what the team had to say back then. On cubes and the pockets that fit them. As far as tech trends go, smaller is almost always better. The team behind the University of Malta's first ever pocket cube satellite agree except when it comes to their ambitions. Cassie Camilleri speaks to doctor and engineer Mark Atsupadi, Darren Kakia, and Jonathan Camilleri to determine how work is progressing ahead of their 2018 space launch. Space has the ability to capture imaginations like nothing else. Some of the latest blockbuster films like Interstellar, Gravity and The Martian are a testament to that fact. Science has produced a steady stream of knowledge, providing solid answers on how the world around us works. 
but the remaining list is not becoming easier to unravel. As a result, technology has made tremendous leaps to meet these demands, and we now live in a world where cutting-edge technology surrounds us on a daily basis. Go to any university, science fair, or tech convention, and you can barely swing a cat without hitting 20 cutting-edge projects. The term that once had everyone buzzing has lost its impact. When it comes to the pocket cube satellite, called UOM BSAT-1, and its minuscule size of 5 centimetres on each side, its position on the scale of innovation is cemented firmly. The beginnings of this research project lie somewhere around 2014. The University of Malta researchers have been held back by the sheer expense of launching rockets and satellites. Turning this issue on its head, Dr. and Engineer Mark Atsapadi and Dr. and Engineer Dr. Andrew Samut set up the Astronautics Research Group, Astria. Their aim? To find affordable solutions to the plethora of issues that arise when electronic components are sent into space. At face value, their answer appears to be twofold. Standardization and miniaturization. The secret source, however, involves combining off-the-shelf components in new and clever ways, without sacrificing too much in terms of reliability. The cost of launching objects into space, aside from the research, development and considerable fixed costs that come before it, are above €10,000 per kilogram. Up there, a thimble full of lead would cost as much as a bar of gold. Therefore, the tech trend holds true here too. The smaller, the better. This is where the Pocket Pico's miniaturized size is the key. Weighing in at a mere 250 grams and measuring 10 centimeters in length, this miniature satellite could be the answer to all our prayers and to all space-orientated engineers and scientists' cash flow troubles. Proposed by Professor Robert Twigg at Stanford University, cubic satellites of various standard sizes have gained incredible popularity over the years, but only four pocket cubes have made it into space thus far. Ready-made kits of SatCube nanosatellites, 10 centimetres on each side, are available to anyone over the internet through online shops that are sprouting all over Europe. A startup in Glasgow plans to do the same with pocket cubes. However, a fairly deep pocket remains a prerequisite for each kit, with each kit clocking in at about €10,000, a figure that stands alone and includes none of the launch costs. Following a call issued by the new research group in 2014, Darren Kakia joined the team and is now laying the groundwork to build the University of Malta's first pocket cube satellite from scratch, with off-the-shelf components, as part of his Masters in Science and Engineering. In the same way smartphones can be made at a fraction of the price they used to, why can't satellites go down the same route? This line of questioning was exactly the kind of discussion Kakia and his longtime friend, Jonathan Camilleri, found themselves getting excited about. At the time, Camilleri had just been accepted at the University of Birmingham to read for a doctorate, a project focused on the use of small satellites to study certain properties of the Earth's ionosphere, an ionised region of the upper atmosphere. Camilleri wanted to look into variations in the ionosphere, improve models, and effectively predict what effect they could have on the operation of communication systems, such as GPS. This kind of information would then be used to develop methods that would mitigate damaging effects on these systems. These overlapping interests led to Kakir and Camilleri proposing their space mission at the 5th Interplanetary CubeSat workshop in Oxford. After the workshop, talks ensued between the University of Malta and Serene, the Space Environment and Radio Engineering Research Group in Birmingham, run by Camilleri's supervisor, Professor Matthew Angling. An agreement between the universities was reached, linking the projects to launch a pocket cube. 
The idea is to build a financially viable satellite and launch eight such devices into space to create a constellation, says Camilleri. These would spread over a large geographical area and hence gain better coverage of the ionosphere's parameters. This way, they'd be able to harvest numerous measurements at any one time, bolstering accuracy significantly. Should it be successful, the satellites will relay information back to Earth for many months, perhaps years. That would be useful to scientists involved in the study of the ionosphere. After that, the devices will gradually run out of steam, the batteries will deteriorate, and the cubes will orbit Earth, lifeless for another 20 years. That's before burning up in the upper atmosphere, very much like a shooting star. But that will not be the end of it. The idea was, and is, to modularize and standardize space systems as much as possible, so future users won't have to go through the process of developing and creating everything from scratch every time, says Kakia. In future, the focus should be on achieving the data we need to do the science, iterates Camilleri. With this project, we're hitting two birds with one stone. In the meantime, the team is gaining useful insights and design experience for future projects. We are also building human expertise, so that a new generation of young students would have the support and be inspired to take Malta into space regularly, comments at Sopardi. While a tiny satellite that can fit in your pocket sounds adorable, the process of making it better can be torturous. The small size obviously creates issues. The question of whether or not the power supply and batteries would fit comes up often. The researchers also need to determine the reliability of the device. Will they be able to install fail-safes into the satellite to prevent catastrophic malfunction or inaccurate data which, if transmitted, could offset results? Beyond the issue of volume, they have to think about the massive temperature swings, corrosive oxygen radicals, high radiation levels and extremely low pressures that the device, its components and their materials need to withstand. Kakia has mostly been testing various commercial off-the-shelf materials and components to determine what can and cannot be used in UOM-BSAT-1. Since June 2016, I've been putting stuff together, checking if the circuits work and modifying designs where required, notes Kakia. Atsapadi nods in agreement. It's really an arduous but necessary process of trial and error, driven by increasingly educated guesses. Camilleri is concurrently working on the sensor needed to obtain the ionosphere readings, which is presenting several challenges. I had to design an experiment inside a vacuum chamber to test it, and I had no idea where to start from. At first, I had no clue how to generate free electrons in a vacuum to stimulate an ionospheric plasma. It was a low period for me. I thought I needed years to develop something decent. It was tough, but despite the difficulty, Camilleri pulled it together and pushed through. How? Papers. Lots of papers. It's all about reading. More educated guesses verified by analysis. Modelling and experiments. Step by step, I created basic shapes and worked towards more complex field geometries from there. Other teams of students are also working on important areas of the project. We need a communication system, a power system, some onboard data handling and an attitude control system, or an ACS, that would orientate the satellite correctly. The ACS team is made of three other students, Denise Pacchino, Ramses Rotin, and Darren DiBattista, and their supervisor, Professor and Engineer Simon Fabry, and Doctor and Engineer Marvin Bajaya. The communication element has seen the faculty of ITC being roped in and building its own team. This is truly an inspiring interdisciplinary all-hands-on-deck type of situation. Pooling time and expertise is the only realistic way to get anything significant done, says Atsupadi. This work has accumulated in a successful feasibility study. The current design fits within the parameters of the pocket cube. However, 
power budget is tight. Five out of six sides of the satellite are covered with exotic, high-efficiency solar panels. But there isn't much area to begin with, so it took some careful design and calculations before we were confident enough that we would be able to operate all systems and leave enough margin for contingencies, reveals Atsapadi. They presented these results at the Small Satellite Systems and Services Symposium in Valletta in June 2016. That was when we got to know how the industry works. We met a lot of people, people with whom we had got in touch with before and who offered to review our project, notes Atsapadi, a process which will move them one step closer to launch day. Now we finished the prototype, asserts Kakia. A preliminary design review is coming up between May and June of 2017. This would require a prototype to be assembled and functional, even if it is not perfect. It is a constraint we have. We need to work within academic schedules to keep participation open to as many students as possible, Adzapadi points out. But work will continue long after this first milestone, and the team has their sights set well into the future. There is a whole market for this. Once we develop all the subsystems for this project, we could have the opportunity to launch startups to help others save on developmental time, says Adzapadi. Apart from the potential money-making side of things, this project will hopefully lead to many others for Malta to join the ESA. I know that the Malta Council of Science and Technology are encouraging more cooperation with the ESA and concrete projects for further capacity building are being explored, comments Atsapadi. It may be a very small satellite that we're working on, but the effort going into it is immense, notes Atsapadi, and rightly so. This project could lead to the University of Malta and the country having a space programme of sorts. This is also paving the way for the future. A future that yields solutions to earthly and perhaps national problems. And a future that may grow into a local industry that can support the careers of many budding engineers and scientists with a passion for adventure. Hi, welcome back. We're here with Mark Anthony and we're talking about Pico satellites, not micro ones. So what is the main kind of... When you downgrade or shrink down these sort of things, what is the main problem you come across? Because quite often now you get like systems need to be in triplicate or something like that for if like one fails or some bit switching or something along those lines. What is the main issue with this sort of shrinkage? Yes, (laughs) a lot of issues crop up. One of the main issues is that in larger satellites, you tend to divide systems into their own, into black boxes. So each system is validated and uh, and encapsulated and guaranteed to work as a system. So there's all the redundancy within it and uh, it's built to serve a function. In this case, you don't afford to have this much redundancy all over the place because you simply don't have enough uh, space. So what we do is we share resources between systems and that makes it a bit tricky to design because that also means that you need to co-design various systems to share certain functionality and pool resources. So you don't get that much of a distinction. It's no longer that easily, uh, that, that distinctly modular as in the case of larger satellites. So that is, uh, I think, one of the biggest challenges we face. And you also mentioned building a constellation of these satellites. So as I imagine, let's say uh, one of them flies out from Stuttgart and they can send you data perhaps so you would know what they're working on. Is the principle of the idea that um, the satellites would communicate with each other or would they have to first, let's say, send their signals to Earth and then the team would share them with you. 
and then you would send it back to your satellite and then the satellite would take action. Well, both approaches are possible. Generally, if they're satellites from different teams, it's not that easy for them to communicate unless they're meant and designed for that uh, at the outset. Generally, if you're talking about one constellation, it's designed to fulfill a set of functions and uh, basically there would be a mission control center and it would basically send data to the mission control center. But there are a variety of ways of doing this. Satellites can relay information, for example, from one satellite to the next. That's one of the ideas of using constellations and then uh, downlink from one of them. An alternative is to have uh, like a reverse constellation, a constellation, rather a network of uh, ground stations here on Earth. And there are such systems being developed, even in the open source community, of uh, a number of ground stations. People pool resources. They, everyone builds, many people build their own ground station to a particular uh, specification and they pool resources on the network and and then everybody can everybody on the network can can basically use any any node on the network to communicate with his um, or her, her satellites. Such a system, for example, is uh, it's called Satnogs. It's one of the networks currently being developed. It's a, it was a Greek concept which took off, um, very, very popular. Uh, we also uh, set up a, a local node, one of my students did anyway, and we're trying to set up also a university node for this. And the idea is to basically have multiple ground stations and makes you much less dependent on a single station so you can communicate with the satellite wherever it would be and if you have multiple of them you can communicate with, with them in various places and as we know space race is quite uh, politicized and uh, different countries are competing even though teams of academics might want to collaborate are there any countries that you wouldn't collaborate with even though they have excellent pocket cube teams I think one of the ideas that was put forward through this uh, new space paradigm was that it was to democratize space. So rather than have uh, a lot of uh, you know, balkanization of, of resources, everybody pools resources in the way that the academic community is generally uh, accustomed to. Freedom so of commons, sort of yes, like. Yes, yes, yes. So everyone has a stake in it. Everyone has a stake in it. And, and you get much more publication. A lot of things were, uh, in some sense, rediscovered. So they were possibly uh, <laughs> classified material developed uh, way back in the 70s and 80s, but then reissued and rediscovered in, in, the, in the public domain, in the, uh, in the civilian domain. And a lot of these technologies are being uh, shared by the community in this way. Do you think at some point these could be, you could buy, go into an electronic shop and buy a kit? You could take home and like make your own satellite at home and modulate that to whatever you want. And you've also talked about a little bit how you went in like hardware stores and like electronic stores just to find like weird and wonderful kind of cheap alternatives just to bodge a job. <laughs> what kind of, what was the best sort of, two sort of questions there, what was the best sort of bodge job you got? <laughs> yes, in fact you can already, uh, you, can actually, you can already buy kits. They're a bit on the expensive side, but not not very expensive in, in space terms. You can already buy kits to to set up and build satellite systems, and that's perhaps one of the ways we could go to develop this this kind of platform and make it available on this kind of market. 
But the interesting thing is that, by and large, the electronics that goes into these satellites is borrowed from uh, um, mobile phones and from portable electronics. So we have access to a lot of electronics, a lot of circuitry, a lot of devices, a lot of technology that has been developed for other means, which is now being integrated into, the, into these little devices. So when are you expecting your space launch? <laughs> Depends a lot on funding. That's one of our perennial problems, as usual. At the moment, we're not too worried about that in the sense our objective is not to tick a checkbox and just fly it, although, of course, we definitely want to do that. The main thing is uh, the educational aspect and the research aspect. So we're using this as a vehicle to develop new technology. Uh, the funding is starting to trickle in, so uh, we hope that uh, we'll get there. What, in the meantime, have you discovered with your team? Where have you been testing it? Testing is another challenging issue because, of course, you cannot really, really replicate the space environment uh, here on Earth. What we do is we develop small environments, for example, vacuum and the particular magnetic field scenario and you find in orbits, uh, in certain orbits, and, uh, and vibration, for example, when it comes for launch. And we test devices separately under these various conditions. And then uh, we try to figure out how it would behave when we combine all the effects together. That's an exciting time for students to join your team. So let's hope we'll, you'll have a lot of new enthusiastic colleagues interested in this technology. Thank you. Okay, so thank you very much, Mark Anthony, for joining us today. And thank you for listening in. Join us next time on The Rethink. That was all from Rethink for today. Tell us what you think about the episode by commenting on ThinkUM on Facebook, ThinkUni on Instagram, or ThinkUniMalta on Twitter. Rethink is produced by Think Magazine in collaboration with Campus FM. If you are listening to us from outside of Malta, you can find Think on isuu.com forward slash thinkuni. Our theme music is by Princess Wonderful. You can find the link to her profile in the show notes. Your hosts, Daivara Pachkaita and Chris Stiles. Our sound technician is Carmo Grek. Find us on Spotify, iTunes, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. Thank you for listening and bye for now.